Briefly in depositive territory, hey, we're essentially here. flat Welcome now, back to another uh, live stream. Today we were talking about how the Federal Reserve the there. just yeah, now released essentially, a statement uh, that they have right begun the taper. Uh, we were down, oh, like seven, eight, nine points there December, just a little while expected, ago. It was and moving a, back down a little. Oh, sorry, there we go. Double volume on there. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, welcome, welcome back. Uh, so the Federal Reserve uh, just announced uh, that uh, they have begun the taper. We expected this $15 billion taper. Let's go ahead and look specifically through their statement here. Jerome Powell does speak in about 27 minutes, so we'll cover Jerome Powell talking as well, and uh, then we'll react. But uh, let's take a look at uh, what we've got here. So Federal Reserve, uh, specifically, we're going to jump right over here. The Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates the same. We expected this. We don't expect that they're going to raise the rate at any point until we actually see uh, the taper fully complete because they don't see a point in like providing stimulus to the market and raising rates at the same time. They, they think that doesn't make sense. So they're going to complete the taper fully first. Uh, they are uh, going to keep interest rates at that zero to 0.25% uh, uh, level. Expect it will be appropriate to maintain this until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessment. of Maximum employment and inflation has risen to 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. This, by the way, is the same line that they've had over and over again in here. Uh, so it's it's we, we know we're over 2% right now. Uh, but they're mentioning that they their whole thesis has always been, let's keep uh, inflation running hot for a little bit because we've had such low inflation for a while. So it's all part of a, apparently their master plan, but uh, we are seeing uh, inflation last longer and, and be larger than expected. In light of substantial further progress the economy has made since last December, the committee decided to begin reducing the monthly pace of its net purchases by $10 billion for treasuries and $5 billion for agency-backed securities. This is mortgages. So a lot of folks have said that the Federal Reserve should really just keep money in treasuries, uh, keep basically buying treasuries, but uh, that they should not, uh, or, or rather that they should uh, fully cut the real estate uh, bond purchases, mortgage-backed securities purchases rather. Uh, and they say that because the real estate market has just been so incredibly hot. However, Jerome Powell and uh, most of the members of the Fed are so... Uh, are, are much more interested in seeing an even uh, taper where you taper since we're right now we're buying 80 billion dollars a month of treasury bonds and 40 billion dollars a month of mortgage uh, bonds uh, they uh, they're keeping basically that taper in line uh, with the ratios uh, since you've got twice as many bonds being bought in treasuries every single month they are tapering 10 billion there and half from uh, the mortgages so they're basically doing an even taper which is kind of interesting because the real estate market is pretty hot and uh, folks say, hey, the last thing that needs more liquidity is the mortgage-backed securities market. This, by the way, just so you know, kind of like how you could picture what it is, is imagine you had uh, you had like a book or something. Here's just a uh, old broken notepad I have. Let's say every single one of these pieces of paper was one person's mortgage. And so this whole thing had like 200 people's mortgages on it. Uh, say each is uh, $500,000, then this would be a $100 million uh, bundle here, right? Uh, well, you could slice this up and then each little sliver uh, of, of you know, the pie, so to speak, kind of like a slice of, uh, of a piece of art, like an NFT, <laughs> each little slice uh, can be bought as bonds, mortgage-backed securities. So it just kind of gives you a little bit of an idea on how to maybe visualize what those even are. So, uh, and, and then as you make your payment, those are people who receive those interest payments, which is interesting because 
folks always complain about, oh, I'm tired of paying the bank interest. I don't like paying the bank interest. It's not really the bank you're paying interest. The bank might collect your money, but it's the people who hold those mortgage-backed securities. They're making money on the fact that you had a mortgage. So anyway, uh, beginning later this month, the committee will increase its holdings of treasury securities by 70 billion per month, right? That's down from 80. And uh, they will increase their mortgage-backed securities by 35 bill a month, down from 40. Beginning in December, ooh, look at this. They're even giving us the path. Uh, beginning in December, the committee will increase its holdings of treasury securities by at least 60 billion. That's another 10 billion taper an agency by 30 there's another five so so they're going to go do um, a 15 billion dollar taper followed by another 15 billion dollar taper in december this makes sense committee judges that similar reductions will likely be appropriate each month so uh in other words we'd have a uh, december and then another five months so this could take us through june of 2022 and then we can be completely done tapering by about the summer which is right along expectations that we finish tapering in the summer. And when we finish tapering in the summer, we'll, uh, we'll be at a position where perhaps uh, interest rates could go uh, start getting raised. We'll see. All right. Uh, so what else do we have here? And then we'll, then we'll look at the, uh, there we go. Complete the look. <laughs> then, then we'll look at uh, the market because the market's reacting pretty positively. Assessing the appropriate stance of monetary policy, the fed will continue to monitor the committee will continue to monitor. Okay. And remember, Jerome Powell's talking about 22 minutes. The Federal Reserve is ongoing purchases and holdings of securities will continue to foster. Okay. Uh, thereby supporting the flow of credit. So they're kind of giving their rationale as to why they're still stimulating. Because remember, they're still stimulating. When, they're st when they haven't completely tapered, they're still introducing printed money to the market by the tune of $105 billion a month, right? And then next month, it'll be $90 billion. And then thereafter, it'll be expected $75 billion, right? But anyway, this is the S&P 500. You can see the S&P 500 uh, move nicely. Uh, I mean, this was a move from about four, what do we have here? About 461, uh, a point and a half fluctuating here. All right, let's, let's see how some individual stocks are doing. Let's see here. Tesla's flat. Did have a little bump on that news. Oh, look at that. Solana. Uh, up 7%. Let's take a look and see. So Bed Bath & Beyond, remember yesterday they announced that they were going to um, move forward their stock buyback. They had a stock buyback plan over three years, and they said, oh, we're going to do that all right now within uh, uh, within the next year. Well, I'm sorry, not within the next year. Uh, oh, yeah, this is a good one. Within the next uh, two months, actually. So they're they're moving all their bond buying up to that, which is or not bond buying, their stock buybacks up to this year. So let's see here. Look at bonds for a moment here. 10-year treasury did pop up a little bit after this. We were, I want to say, at 1.55 right before this. Let's look at the day chart. Yeah, look at that. So here's your day chart. And you have uh, less, um, let's see here. Yeah, so we were somewhere around 1.56 here at the start. And uh, did pop up to about 1.59. So not a dramatic pop-up. But you would expect this when you uh, see, what's it called? Uh, when you see the Fed buying less bonds, you have less buying pressure on bonds. 
which means the price goes down of the bond. As the price of the bond goes down, yields go up. So if the Fed is going to be less of a buyer, then it makes sense that yields would naturally go up. So anytime we hear the Federal Reserve uh, reduce their bond purchases, you're removing a buyer, a large, a heavy hitter. You're removing a whale from the market, right? When you remove a whale from the market, you have a lot less buying pressure uh, and uh, th that, that will force yields up. Okay, yeah, no kidding. The chat here has been so spammy because it's not on members mode. This is why we have members mode. So anybody who's confused as to why we have members only mode, the spam bots don't want to pay $4.99 a month. They're too cheap. Mm. Good old buy the dip coffee. Although there's not really a dip. Let's see uh, indices here. Oh, the S&P just went negative. So a little bit of a mixed market again. The Dow's down almost a quarter. NASDAQ tech, though, up 0.5. And the Russell's up 0.77 again. Russell really playing catch up here. Uh, you've got Uber up 5.8%. Uh, Cardano up 5%. Beyond Meat 5%. Uh, Lemonade. Lemonade. Look at that. 4.6% again. That's on top of like a 6% run yesterday. So congratulations uh, there finally on uh, the insure tech space. See, and, and this is the other thing to know about uh, market rallies is at some point a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Or, or ships or whatever we call it. Uh, the that's a beautiful thing about a market rally is market rallies can be a great way for you to lighten your bags. If you have bags on certain stocks, like for me, Pinterest is, is uh, one where it's like, okay, maybe one of these days, Pinterest will go up. We'll, we'll see. I don't, so far it hasn't been, but again, uh, eventually as markets go up, uh, yeah, I mean, it's up 0.4%, but as uh, markets go up, you see stocks that have been left behind look like opportunities. So something like Lemonade, I've regularly been talking about how Lemonade is pretty cheap uh, and the volatility is low and that it's been somewhat juicy for potential call options. If you zoom out to the uh, to the day chart, you could see leading up to uh, today, it, it was pretty much here on this, this feather out, this bleed out, uh, as low as May levels here and uh, as low as some of the lows we saw during the IPO, or maybe not completely as low, but... Uh, we were bouncing around some of those IPO prices. Uh, all, all of this being basically gone. Uh, it's so uh, now we're seeing a little bit of a look at that volume that has moved into Lemonade here. So I would expect to see trends like this continue again as, as prices go up. People take money from things like Tesla and they're like, okay, what else is cheap? Oh, Lemonade's cheap. Okay, what else is cheap? Oh, this is cheap. So that's pretty common. Ooh, look at that. Redfin down 5.46% after Zillow falls 24%. Oh my gosh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a big old, that's a big loss there. Uh, and look at EXPI dropping 8.64%. Hmm. You know, I actually think that's a little bogus on, on, the, on behalf of EXPI. Because see, EXPI does not do home buying and flipping. Oh, and by the way, I thought about this a little bit more because people were trying to educate me on accounting yesterday, uh, but they weren't also listening. And that's a problem. Uh, so I'm going to show something here really quick. So give me one sec. I want to get into Bloomberg so I can see if there's anything going on with EXP because I don't think there is. Uh, and then what we'll do is we'll listen to Jerome Powell when he comes to speak. But so far, the market's being pretty excited here. 
Okay, so Jerome Powell comes in about 15 minutes. And let's say overall the stock market is cheering uh, this uh, this taper news. Okay, so and then jobs report on Friday. It's going to be another catalyst for us. All right. So take a look at this. Uh, when Zillow, look, let's put it this way. If uh, let's say you're Costco, really quick, and I want to see what y'all think about this. Okay, let's say you're Costco. Uh, you sell. Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, boxes of, uh, gosh, I let's go. You sell boxes of pasta. Okay. You sell a hundred dollars of boxes of pasta. The way thing, the way accounting usually works is you have revenue, which makes sense. You have the pasta. Uh, then you had, uh, the cost of the pasta pasta. And this is exactly what they're doing with real estate. So it kind of, it makes sense, but I'm going to show you what I mean. So anyway, you have revenue coming in at Costco, hundred bucks. The cost of the goods were maybe, I don't know, 30 bucks is what you paid for the, the, the pasta. And uh, then you're going to have your OPEX, which let's say is 15 bucks. It's probably, uh, this is probably honestly more like 50 bucks. Let's go with that. There you go. And uh, now that leaves you with about a $35 uh, profit. And this is not net income because then you still have interest and uh, taxes and all that. So just a quick example, this is usually how things work. And this makes sense that you've got $10 of pasta coming in. Uh, or I'm sorry, $100 of pasta coming in, you spent $50 to buy the pasta, and then you had your operating costs uh, for that. The fun thing, the, sort of the funny thing about real estate, though, is if they now got into the real estate business, uh, personally, uh, I feel like it makes more sense, uh, and, and they don't, because it's just, it, then it would be non-standard. But to me, it makes sense if you had, uh, let's say you bought a $100,000 house now and sold it for $105,000, uh, then, then this all of a sudden makes it look like your revenue is like this, and then your your cost of goods sold is I don't know. Uh, well, well, you sold it for one hundred five thousand. Let's say, go with that quickly, and then we'll get back to the Fed here. One sec, five hundred. There we go. Your cost of goods sold in this case would be one hundred and what do we say fifty? There we go. Yeah, uh, one hundred and fifty, something like this. And so it, it makes it look like your your numbers explode this much. Uh, which is so weird because it really skews how much money Zillow and, and these other companies can make from, from other aspects of their business. Like Redfin doesn't only do flipping. So I was saying it feels like it would make more sense if this top line number here was actually just something like this. Uh, the, the, the revenue being the difference between what you sold the property for and this. So now you have, let's say, $5,000 of revenue, right? But then it still costs you money to do to do the work there uh, at, at the property or whatever. So I I don't know personally to me that seems like it'd be a little bit more intuitive that uh, now we have costs that went into this uh, and then you're marketing to let's say acquire the property and things like this right. Uh, this to me just feels more intuitive. Like okay, what did what did it cost me to to, to deal with this? My uh, my staff and so on and so forth related to that property, the contractors or whatever. Oh, but maybe maybe their version is is more intuitive. I don't know. It's just for comparison sakes. It uh, seems a little odd. Uh, okay, so let's now wait for Jerome Powell and take a look. Uh, go to the top news here. And also, let's get ready here for Jerome Powell. All right. Uh, yeah, so anyway, okay, I was going to talk about EXPI, EXPI, okay, so 
EXPI news because EXPI is dipping a lot on this Zillow news. Mm. What? Okay, well, EXPI actually has a different set of news. That's odd. So EXPI reported this morning, EXPI maintains dividend of $0.04, cents, revenue of $1.11 billion. EPS came in at $0.15. Cents. That beats the $0.11 cent estimate. So EXPI beat. That's so weird. Okay, EXPI beat. Oh, here we go. Uh, EXPI stock falls. SEC get uh, SEC sends EXPI subpoena on commission practices. Wow, interesting. So I mean that could be why EXPI is down a little bit. EXPI gets subpoena on commission practices. Let's look at it together and let's see what it is. Because that's their whole business. Let's see here. No, I, I don't think it's just the sector here. Let's go. Let's look at this here. Because they got press releases. We had to see SEC filings. There we go. Current report. Statement of beneficial interest. Probably in this current report. 8K. What is this? Uh, announcing financial results. No, where is the SEC thing? Hmm. EXPI SEC Commission. This news just came out, and I'd love to know what it is. News? It's not even up. Yeah, this, did this literally just come out? I, I guess within the last 30, 20 minutes here. No impact expected from the SEC inquiry. Well, I wonder what, what the complaint was. But that could explain why EXP is down a little bit. EXPI disclosed on regulatory in a regulatory filing that the company received a subpoena issued by the SEC during for its commission practices during 2018 and 19. The company is fully cooperating with the SEC. Company does not believe the impact will have uh, the impact or the inquiry will have a material impact on the company's financial condition. Well, I would love to know what it was. Okay, so is it with they buried it within their quarterly filing? Is what they did. That's so weird. Inquiry. Here, look at that. On June first, the company received June first. It's a while ago company received uh, a subpoena by the SEC requesting certain documents between 2018 and 19. Company does not believe it. Yeah, they don't really explain it. Oh, well, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah, okay. So let's, at least while we're here, let's look at their revs. So revenue here in thousands. So they had two, uh, 2.694 uh billion in revenue they gave their agents 92 percent of that general and admin 171 million 
sales and marketing. Look how little their sales and marketing is relative to their business. It's because this, see with eXpi, the cool thing is you don't really have to market that much. Like the agents are your marketers for you. It's kind of brilliant. All right, Jerome Powell in seven minutes. So uh, this is, they did bump their marketing though. But it's not that much. Wow, look at the difference here. I mean, they have exploded compared to the nine months ended in September 30th, 2020. Jeez, but yeah, I mean, I would want to compare though. Let's compare to uh, last year. That would be cool. Here, I'll, I'll pull it up really quick on this. And then Jerome Powell comes in six minutes. So we'll see what we'll see what Mr. J Powell says to crash the market. <laughs> yeah, get your popcorn ready. Okay, so their revenue right now is current current revenue. So why do they list it like that? That's funny. Hold on a second here. Income statement. These are the estimates. All right. Oh, okay. Oh, there we go. Okay. Okay. That's last 12 months. That makes sense. Okay. So for tw in 2019, EXPI did $979 million on the top line, and they were not profitable. They became profitable in 2020. So this number here is just the first nine months of 2021 and the first or the full 12 months of 2019, they did, what did they do? Let's see here, 979 divided by 2694. They did a third. Wow. That's actually really good. 979 divided this way. They did 2.75x in just... They did 2.75 times as much revenue in 2021 as they did in the full uh, 12 months of 2019. And this is just the first nine months. And their sales and marketing is nothing. I wonder, has their spread gone up a little bit? Yeah, well, see, their general and administration is only one seven, is, is only 6% now. So this has gone down. So that's good. Which makes sense. As revenue goes up, they should be more efficient. And uh, they're, yeah, I mean, the commissions are always going to sit at somewhere between that uh, 9 and 8%. So they lost a percent here, though. Hmm. Earnings per share, 45. What were they expecting? Let's see here. Earnings estimates. Because they're down. I can't believe they'd be down so much on just this SEC thing. Uh, hold on. Let's... Oh, I haven't even been sharing the screen with you all. Sorry. There you go. So uh, Jerome Powell talks in four minutes. So I'll hang out for Jerome Powell here. But uh, just for anybody wondering, I was just looking up the... Oh, yeah, they beat. Wow, they beat really well. Hmm. So I was just looking at the earnings reports here for EXBI. EXBI disclosed that... The SEC sent them an inquiry in June for some commission practices back in 2018 and 19, but not about their commission practices in 2021 or, or 2020, which is interesting because it implies that those issues are, you know, were, were basically just an issue back then and aren't anymore, which is good. 
because the last thing you want is is the way they do their commission model to be an issue broadly. That, that would be very, very bad. But anyway, they beat on EPS. EPS came in at 15 cents versus 12.7 expected. Gap EPS came in at 15 cents versus 11.3 expected. Revenue came in at 1.1 billion versus 999 million expected. So that's a really nice beat. That's like a 10% beat here, a little more than that. Net income came in substantially more than expected, 23.8 million versus uh, 14.6 million. I mean, I think they, they, they killed it here uh, in the quarter. So I think they did really well. So uh, I'm a little surprised they're falling so much. Let's look at the chart here. I wonder if it's just because people are selling off the real estate sector. But this is EXPI on uh, sort of your broader chart here. You can see it had this euphoria. This, by the way, was after the stock split. See, the stock split was right here. And it basically started selling off right after the stock split. So you kind of have some euphoria here that probably doesn't belong because of the uh, stock split. See, if this was, uh, if you didn't do the stock split, this would probably look a whole lot more like uh, something like this. You know, you could be trading along. Uh, there we go. Just sorry. Right. There we go. Stay tra trading along this sort of trend here a little bit more, or or you know maybe even a little bit something like. You'd say something like this, where you're trading above it or below it a little bit. But all this over here is mostly excess because of that stock split hype. So if you're ever wondering if stocks run when there's a stock split and fall after, the answer is usually yes. <laughs> this is a good example of that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I wonder if EXPI is just down 8% really because of the Zillow drama, which seems like nonsense to me, uh, that EXPI would be down because they're in totally different worlds, but whatever. All right, uh, let's go ahead and uh, prep for J-Pow. J-Pow, J-Pow. Actually, we're pretty much ready for J-Pow. J-Pow comes out in one minute. So let's see here. <laughs> yeah, Zillow. People, Zillow's getting so low, it also does make you scratch your head. Like, wow, it, what are they worth? Uh, with without the flipping business and losses, right? So I don't know. In February of 2020, they were selling for about 66 bucks, and they were selling in the 50s in 2019. Pretty big faux pas there. And the next earnings are gonna suck because they're gonna show some massive losses. But anyway, all right. Let's get ready for the Fed. He will be talking momentarily. Kind of exciting when Jay Pow talks. You know, he just had a fun Halloween. All right. Okay, 11.30 should be out. All right, here we go. We are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us, maximum employment and price stability. Today, the FOMC kept interest rates near zero, and in light of the progress the economy has made toward our goals, decided to begin reducing the pace of asset purchases. With these actions, monetary policy will continue to provide strong support to the economic recovery. 
Given the unprecedented nature of the disruptions related to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy, we remain attentive to risks and will ensure that our policy is well positioned to address the full range of plausible economic outcomes. I will say more about our monetary policy decisions after reviewing recent economic developments. Economic activity expanded at a 6.5% pace in the first half of the year, reflecting progress on vaccinations, the reopening of the economy, and strong policy support. In the third quarter, real GDP growth slowed notably from this rapid pace. The summer's surge in COVID cases from the Delta variant has held back the recovery in the sectors most adversely affected by the pandemic, including travel and leisure. Activity has also been restrained by supply constraints and bottlenecks, notably in the motor vehicle industry. As a result, both household spending and business investment flattened out last quarter. Nonetheless, aggregate demand has been very strong this year, buoyed by fiscal and monetary policy support and the healthy financial positions of households and businesses. With COVID case counts receding further and progress on vaccinations, economic growth should pick up this quarter, resulting in strong growth for the year as a whole. Conditions in the labor market have continued to improve and demand for workers remains very strong. As with overall economic activity, the pace of improvement slowed with the rise in COVID cases. In August and September, job gains averaged 280,000 per month, down from an average of about 1 million jobs per month in June and July. The slowdown has been concentrated in sectors most sensitive to the pandemic, including leisure and hospitality and education. The unemployment rate was 4.8% in September. This figure understates the shortfall in employment, particularly as participation in the labor market remains subdued. Some of the softness in participation likely reflects the aging of the population and retirements. But participation for prime-aged individuals also remains well below pre-pandemic levels, in part reflecting factors related to the pandemic, such as caregiving needs and ongoing concerns about the virus. As a result, employers are having difficulties filling job openings. These impediments to labor supply should diminish with further progress on containing the virus, supporting gains in employment and economic activity. The economic downturn has not fallen equally on all Americans, and those least able to shoulder the burden have been hardest hit. Despite progress, joblessness continues to fall disproportionately on African Americans and Hispanics. The supply and demand imbalances related to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy have contributed to sizable price increases in some sectors. In particular, bottlenecks and supply chain dis disruptions are limiting how quickly production can respond to the rebound in demand in the near term. As a result, overall inflation is running well above our 2% longer run goal. Supply constraints have been larger and longer lasting than anticipated. <laughs> Nonetheless, it remains the case that the drivers of higher inflation have been predominantly connected to the dislocations caused by the pandemic, specifically the effects on supply and demand from the shutdown, the uneven reopening, and the ongoing effects of the virus itself. We understand the difficulties that high inflation poses for individuals and families, particularly those with limited means to absorb higher prices 
for essentials such as food and transportation. Our tools cannot ease supply constraints. Like most forecasters, we continue to believe that our dynamic economy will adjust to the supply and demand imbalances, and that as it does, inflation will decline to levels much closer to our 2% longer run goal. Of course, it is very difficult to predict the persistence of supply constraints or their effects on inflation. Global supply chains are complex. They will return to normal function, but the timing of that is highly uncertain. We are committed to our longer run goal of 2% inflation and to having longer term inflation expectations well anchored at this goal. If we were to see signs that the path of inflation or longer term inflation expectations was moving materially and persistently beyond levels consistent with our goal, we would use our tools to preserve price stability. We will be watching carefully to see whether the economy is evolving in line with expectations. <clears throat> the Fed's policy actions have been guided by our mandate to promote maximum employment and stable prices for the American people, along with our responsibilities to promote the stability of the financial system. Our asset purchases have been a critical tool. They helped preserve financial stability early in the pandemic and since then have helped foster smooth market functioning and accommodative financial conditions to support the economy. Last September, sorry, December, the committee stated its intention to continue asset purchases at a pace of at least $120 billion per month until substantial, substantial further progress has been made toward our maximum employment and price stability goals. At today's meeting, the committee judged that the economy has met this test and decided to begin reducing the pace of its asset purchases. Beginning later this month, we will reduce the monthly pace of our net asset purchases by $10 billion for Treasury securities and $5 billion for agency mortgage-backed securities. We also announced another reduction of this size in the monthly purchase pace starting in mid-December, since that month's purchase schedule will be released by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York prior to our December FOMC meeting. If the economy evolves broadly as expected, we judge that similar reductions in the pace of net asset purchases will likely be appropriate each month, implying that increases in our securities holdings would cease by the middle of next year. That said, we are prepared to adjust the pace of purchases if warranted by changes in the economic outlook. And even after our balance sheet stops expanding, our holdings of security, securities will continue to support accommodative financial conditions. Our decision today to begin our tapering our asset purchases didn't, does not imply any direct signal regarding our interest rate policy. We continue to articulate a different and more stringent test for the economic conditions that would need to be met before raising the federal funds rate. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. We at the Fed will do everything we can to complete the recovery and employment and achieve our price stability goal. Thank you. I look forward to your questions. All right. Cool. It's good news. Thank you. We'll go to Nick at the Wall Street Journal. This this is all good. This is good. Hi, He's Nick not very hawkish. Wall Street Journal. Chair Powell, the markets anticipate you will raise rates once or twice next year. Are they wrong? <laughs> I love it. It's so blunt. Um, <laughs> so... I would say it this way. Um, we try to focus on what we can control, and that is uh, how to communicate as clearly as possible in this highly uncertain world, 
how we're thinking about the economic outlook and the balance of risks and how policy will uh, evolve uh, in that case and also in the cases which are frequent where the economy evolves in unexpected ways. So the focus at this meeting is on tapering asset purchases, not on raising rates. Uh, it is time to taper, we think, because the economy has achieved substantial further progress toward our goals measured from last December. We don't think it's time yet to raise interest rates. There is still ground to cover to reach uh, maximum employment, both in terms of employment and in terms of participation. Um, getting to your question, uh, our baseline expectation is that supply bottlenecks and shortages will persist well into next year and elevated inflation as well. And that as the pandemic subsides, supply chain bottlenecks will abate and job growth will move back up. And as that happens, inflation will decline from today's elevated levels. Of course, the timing of that is highly uncertain, but certainly we should see inflation moving down by the second or third quarter. The time for lifting rates and beginning to remove accommodation will depend on the path of the economy. We think we can be patient. Uh, if, if a response is called for, we will, we, will not be, we will not hesitate. So what I will tell you is we're watching carefully to see whether the economy evolves in line with our expectations and policy will adapt appropriately. Um, and and that, that's what I would say. Well, based on, if I could follow up, based on your current outlook for the labor market, do you think it's possible or, or likely even that maximum employment could be achieved by the second half of next year? So if you look at the progress that we've made over the course of the last year, uh, if that pace were to continue, then the, the answer would be yes, I do think that that is possible. Uh, of course, we measure maximum employment um, based on a wide range of figures, but uh, it, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we'll go to Gina at the New York Times. Hi, Chair Powell. Um, I was wondering if you could detail a little bit how you're thinking about wages at this moment. Obviously, we're seeing strong wage growth, particularly for people in sort of lower income fields. Um, I wonder if you see that as a positive thing or as a potential start to a wage price spiral and sort of how you, how you sort of delineate those two things. So wages have been moving up strongly, very strongly. And in particular, I would point to the uh, Employment Compensation Index uh, reading that we got last Friday. Now, in real terms, it, they've been, they had been running a little bit below inflation. So real real wages were not really increasing. I think with the ECI reading, it becomes close to uh, 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 not, maybe not increasing, but cl close to back to back to zero in terms of the real increase. So wages moving up, of course, is how standard of living increases over the years for uh, generation upon generation. It's very important and it's generally a good thing. Uh, you know, the concern is a somewhat unusual case where if wages, wages were to be rising persistently and materially above uh, inflation and, and productivity gains, that could put upward pressure on, uh, on or downward pressure on margins and cause companies to their employers really to, to raise prices as a result. And you can see yourself, find yourself in, in what we used to call a wage price spiral. We don't have evidence of that yet. Um, productivity has been very high. Uh, the ECI reading is just one reading. Again, if you look back, uh, we, we so we'll be watching this carefully. But I would say that that at this point we don't see we don't see troubling increases 
in wages, and, and we don't expect those to emerge, but we'll be watching carefully. Next one is Steve Leesman from CNBC. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I wonder if you could uh, perhaps uh, give us your thinking about the trade-offs between inflation and unemployment. You talked about the shortfall in unemployment or employment relative to before the pandemic. Uh, and yet you have inflation, which is affecting everybody. Um, are we at or close to a point where the risk of uh, inflation is greater than the benefit that you'd uh, for recovering these lost jobs? So that now from a risk management standpoint, it makes sense to move more aggressively on rate hikes. A kind of a related question. The, the statement today says you'll keep policy uh, accommodated until you hit that 2% inflation target. Our surveys show looking for 5% inflation this year three and a half percent next year, it sure seems like you're on track to modestly or moderately exceed that 2% target. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm not sure I totally got your first question, but but I would say, in fact, could you just quickly succinctly say your first question again? Uh, sure, the idea that, that the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, that, you're, uh, that you would keep policy accommodative to put this five million folks find these five million jobs again at the same time all, all americans will be suffering from higher inflation is that trade-off worth it or is it better or smarter to raise rates right now to combat inflation uh, and perhaps not lean so heavily on the employment side of the mandate yeah so you know this isn't this isn't the traditional phillips curve situation where there's a direct trade-off where that's really what we're talking about the inflation that we're seeing is really not due to a tight labor market it's due to um uh, bottlenecks and it's due to shortages and it's due to very strong demand meeting those. So um, uh, I think it's not the classical situation where you have that that precise trade-off. But I, you know, in, in this situation, um, we we do have a, pr a provision in our uh, in our uh, statement on longer-run goals, as as you know, that says when when those two things are in tension, what we do is we take into account the employment shortfalls and inflation deviations and the potentially different time horizons over which employment and inflation are projected to return to levels judged consistent with the mandate. So it's a we used to call that the balanced approach paragraph. We have to think about the amount of the deviation. We have to think about the time it will take. And we have to make we have to make policy in a world where the two goals are intention. It's, it's very difficult. What it but what it really boils down to is something that's common sense and that is risk management we have to we have to be aware of the risks that were that, particularly now the risk the market really likes this so far by the way here's your first push on the spy here's your next uh, bottlenecks persisting into next year we see well into next year we see higher inflation persisting and we have to be in position to address that risk should it become uh, should it become really a threat uh, to to uh, should create a threat of more persistent longer term inflation. And that's what we think our policy is doing now. It's putting us in a position to be able to address the range of plausible outcomes. Thank you. Next, we'll go to Colby Smith at the Financial Times. Thank you. Um, Chair Powell, what are the economic conditions um, that would perhaps warrant a faster uh, pace of tapering? And I'm wondering how you would also characterize the risks that the Fed may actually need to accelerate that process eventually. Thank you. So I, I guess, as I said in my uh, opening remarks, assuming the economy uh, performs broadly as expected, 
the committee judges that similar reductions in the pace of net asset purchases will likely be appro appropriate each month. And we're prepared to deviate from that path uh, if warranted by changes in the economic outlook. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to give you a lot more uh, detail on the, what that might be. Of course, if we do see something like that happening, if it becomes a question, then we'll communicate very transparently and openly about that. But I'm just going to leave it with the words that are in the statement. Sorry, was there a second part? Um, yeah, it's just on characterizing the risks that you, you might actually have to uh, to do so later on. You know, I, I would just leave you with with the words we have here. Um, we, we are prepared to speed up or slow down the the pace of reductions in asset purchases if it's warranted by uh, changes in the economic outlook. And again, if we if we feel like something like that's happening, then we'll be we'll be very transparent. about. It. We wouldn't want to surprise markets. We'll we'll say in light of 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 this factor or these factors, uh, we are considering doing this, and then we would either do it or not do it. But so, uh, but I'm not going to, you know, start making up examples of what, what that might be today. Thanks. Thank you. Next, what a Rachel Siegel at the Washington Post. Hi, Chair Powell. Thank you so much for taking our questions. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that the Fed understands the difficulties that high inflation poses for individuals and families, especially those with limited means. What what is your message to those families or consumers that are struggling with higher prices right now? And do you feel that your expectations around transitory uh, inflation is that message is reaching them? Thank you. Yeah. So, um, first of all, we it, it is our job. To, and we accept responsibility and accountability for inflation in the medium term. Our, it is, it, you know, we're, we're accountable to Congress and to the American people for maximum employment and price stability. The level of inflation we have right now is not at all consistent with price stability. By the way, we're also not at maximum employment, as I mentioned. So I, I would want to assure people that, that we will use our tools as appropriate to get inflation under control we don't think it's a good time to raise interest rates, though, because we want to see the labor market heal further. And we have very good reason to think that that will happen as the as the Delta uh, variant uh, um, declines. So which it's doing now, you know, do as I mentioned. So transitory is um, is a word that uh, people have has have had different understandings of. For some, it carries a sense of sh of uh, short lived. And that's that's you know there's a real time component measured in months or let's say, really for us what transitory has meant is that if something is transitory it will not leave a, behind it permanently or or very persistently higher inflation. So that's why we you know we took a step back from transitory. We said expected to be transitory first of all to show uh, uncertainty around that. We've always said that by the way in other contexts we just hadn't done it in the statement, but also to acknowledge really that that. Um, that it means different things to different people. And then we, we added some language uh, to, to, to really explain more what we're talking about in paragraph two and paragraph three. Um, we said that uh, supply and demand imbalances related to the pandemic and the reopening of the economy have contributed to sizable price increases. And we said progress on vaccinations and an easing of supply constraints are expected to support continued gains in economic activity and employment, as well as a reduction in inflation. So we're, we're trying to explain what we mean and and also acknowledging more uncertainty about transitory. So it, it it's um, I mean it's become a word that's attracted a lot of attention that maybe is distracting from our message, which we want to be as clear as possible. 
ultimately, the, the only th other thing I would say is, look, we, we understand completely that it's particularly people who, who are living paycheck to paycheck or seeing higher grocery costs, higher gasoline costs. When the winter comes, higher heating costs for their homes. We understand completely what they're going through. And, um, you know, we, we will use our tools over time to make sure that that doesn't become a permanent uh, feature of, of life. Really, that, that's, that's our, one of our principal jobs, along with achieving maximum employment. And that's our commitment. Really interesting, by the way, that he just said, quote, we will use our tools to get inflation under control and acknowledging that it's not right now, that we don't have price stability. Chair Powell, um, well, I wonder if you could update us. You talked about getting back to full employment. Um, and so could you update how you how you define that? I mean, you've, you know, a few months ago, yourself and other Fed officials talked about getting back to the pre back to the pre-COVID labor market. Uh, there was even Markets are liking this, by the way, so far. Uh, now we hear talk of, as you mentioned, people retiring and there's talk of not. Being and it's probably going up because the market's realizing Jerome Powell's not going to U-turn. He's still sticking with this idea of being slow uh, to taper. Give us some examples of things you're looking at specifically to measure full employment. Will you be looking at prime age employment population ratio, for example, it's not going to answer so, this. You need to see he it. never gives a solid blueprint on exactly what they're looking for. He's going to dodge this. Achieve maximum employment, or is is there something short of that that would work? Thank you. So, thanks. So, maximum employment is um, it's a broad what we say broad based and inclusive goal that's not directly measurable and changes over time due to various factors. You can't specify a specific goal, so it's it's taking into account quite a broad range of things, and, and of course. Uh, employment levels of employment participation uh, are, are part of that but in addition there are there are other measures of of what's going on in the labor market like wages is a key a key measure of how tight the labor market is the level of uh, the level of quits um, the amount of job openings uh, the flows in and out of various states so we, we look at, at so many different things and you make an overall judgment now the temptation at the beginning of, of the recovery was to look at the, the data in February of 2020 and say, well, that's the goal because we didn't know any that that's what we knew, that we knew that was achievable in a context of low inflation. I think we're in a you know, we're, we're learning that we have to be humble about what we know about this economy, which is still very, pen, uh, very, uh, you know, COVID affected, by the way. You know, a lot of what we're seeing in the last 90 days is because of Delta. We were on a path to a very different place. Delta put us on a different path, and, and we, we see these things. But so I, th I think we're going to have to, ideally, we would have, we would see further development of the labor market in a context where there isn't another, another COVID spike. And then we would be able to see, I think, a lot. We would see whether, how does participation react in that world, in that sort of post-COVID world? Uh, right now, people are staying out of the labor market to do to, because of caretaking, because of fear of COVID in significant to significant extent you know we we thought that the uh, that schools reopening and the and elapsing unemployment benefits would would produce some sort of a, a of uh, additional labor supply that doesn't seem to have been the case interestingly so i i think there's there's room for a whole lot of humility here as we try to think about what maximum employment would be we're going to have to see some time post covid so that we know or post delta anyway to see what is possible and I think the learning from for those of us who lived through the last cycle is that over time, um, you can get to places that that didn't look possible. Now, 
Uh, what we also have now, though, is we have high inflation. So we have a completely different situation now where we have high inflation and we have to balance that with what's going on in, in the employment market. So it's a complicated situation. But, and I would say we will we, we hope to achieve significantly greater clarity about where this economy is going and what, it's, what the characteristics of the post-pandemic economy are over the first half of next year. Okay, big non-answer. Thanks. We'll go to Howard Schneider at Reuters. Uh, thanks, and thanks for doing this. So, so given that answer about uh, employment, I, I would like to get back to Steve's question a little bit. On a headline basis, just as it's evolved this year, do you feel that the two tests on inflation have been met? Sorry, so the, the two tests? The two tests in the, in the state of the guidance, that it has ah. to hit 2% and be on track to moderately be above it for 2%. Has the economy cleared that? That's a decision for the committee. I, I would I would put it to you this way: by the, when we reach maximum employment, when we reach a statement a state where labor market conditions are maximum are at maximum employment in the committee's judgment, it's very possible that that the inflation test will already be met. We're aware that that language sounds it sounds a little out of touch with what's going on, but uh, you know we're not at maximum employment. When when the when that when that is the case. We'll look to see whether the inflation test is met, and there's a good chance that it will be if you look at, at how inflation has evolved in the last year and a half. So to follow up, you're, so you're not willing to commit that the current levels of inflation and their persistence have met moderately and for some time. So uh, given that, I mean, how we should render, how should we render what moderately and uh, so, moderately over and for some time mean? What I'm really saying is that question is not before us right now. We're, 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 you know, we were, we had the question on when to taper. We've now answered that question and the speed of it and all that. We're not, we have not focused on whether we meet the liftoff test because we don't meet the liftoff test now because we're not at maximum employment. What I'm saying is when, given where inflation is and where it's projected to be, let's say we do meet the maximum employment test. Then the committee's, the question for the committee at that time will be, has the inflation test be, been met? And you know, I, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of the committee on that. But the, the answer may very well be yes, it's been met. But we're not asking that question today because we're not, we're not running the liftoff test. We're not evaluating the liftoff test today. We didn't have that discussion at today's meeting. We did talk about the economy and the development of the economy, but we didn't ask ourselves whether the liftoff test is met, because you know it's clearly not met on the maximum employment side. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Matthew Bosler at Bloomberg. Hi, Chair Powell. Matthew Bosler with Bloomberg. Um, so when you're looking at this question of assessing whether or not the U.S. economy is at uh, maximum employment, do you have a framework for making that judgment that is independent of what inflation is doing? This is literally the same question of uh, as the last person who asked, how do you define full employment? Now this person's asking for a framework on how you define full employment. The inclination to um, believe that, you know, the high inflation we're seeing is not related to um, capacity utilization in the labor market. Thank you. So we don't actually define maximum employment as we don't we define it in, in terms of inflation. But of course, there is a connection there. Maximum employment has to be a level that is consistent with with stable prices. But uh, but that's not really how we think about it. We think about uh, maximum employment as looking at a broad range of things. You can't just look at, unlike inflation, where you can have a number. Uh, but with, with Tesla just popped nicely. Situation hypothetically, where uh, where 
the unemployment rate is low, but, but there are many people who are out of the labor force and will come back in. And so you wouldn't really be at maximum employment because there's this group that isn't counted as unemployed. Uh, so, so we look at a range of things, and I, you know, so by the thing is, by many uh, measures, we are at a very tight labor market. I meant I mentioned quits and uh, job openings and wages and things like. Many of them are signaling a tight labor market, but the issue is it, how how persistent is that? Because you have people who are held out of the labor market, you know, of their own they're holding themselves out of the labor market because of caretaking needs or because of fear of COVID or for whatever reason, they're staying out. And it's it's clear that there are, you know, with tremendous demand for workers and wages moving up. It does seem like we're set up to go back to a, a higher job creation. So that would suggest that you're not at maximum employment. So at the end of the day, it, it is a judgment thing. But of course, it, it, at the end of the day, it also has to be a level of employment that's consistent with uh, with price stability. He should say, I'm reclaiming my time about this possibility that the two goals might be intention and um, how you would have to balance those two things. Could you talk a little bit about what the Fed's process uh, for balancing those two goals would be in the event that, say, come next year, you decide there's a serious risk of persistent inflationary pressures despite ongoing employment shortfalls? Yeah, I mean, again, it's a it's a risk management thing. It's not I, I can't reduce it to a to an equation, but also ultimately it's it's about risk management. So you you want to uh, be in a position to uh, to act to cover the the full range of plausible outcomes, not just the base case. And in this case, the risk is skewed for now. It, it appears to be skewed toward higher inflation. So we need to be in a position to act in in case it in case it becomes necessary to do so or appropriate to do so. And we think we will be. Um, so that's how we're thinking about it. And uh, um, I, I think, though, that judgmentally, too, it's appropriate to be patient. It's appropriate for us to to see what the labor market and what the economy look like when they heal further. We, we know that we were on a path to a different place, as I mentioned, when Delta arrived and Delta stopped. It stopped job creation. It stopped that transition away from a, a goods-focused economy where there's excess demand for goods because their their services are not available, people are not traveling. That transition itself could help bring inflation down because presumably people would spend a little less on on goods while they start spending on, more on travel and and all sorts of travel services and things like that. So that we want to see that healthy process unfold as we as we decide what the true state of the economy is and we think it will evolve in a way that will mean lower inflation bottlenecks should be abating we start to see that now with some of them but but overall they haven't gotten better overall and we're you know we're very aware of that so that's that's really how we're how we're thinking about it we're thinking that time will tell us more in the meantime we don't think it's time to raise rates now it, you know if we do conclude that that uh, that it's necessary to do so then um We'll be patient, but we, we, we won't hesitate. Thank you. Let's right. go to Edward Lawrence at Fox Business. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for taking the call. Uh, so the Federal Reserve, I want to talk about climate change. The Federal Reserve released a statement today, um, says the Federal Reserve supports the efforts to identify key issues and potential solutions for the climate-related challenges most relevant to central banks and supervisory outcomes. Is this putting us on the path to regulate what banks can offer loans on or invest in? like coal plants or fossil fuels? 
So that's that's not a decision for bank regulators or for any uh, agency. That's that's a decision for elected representatives. So what, we we feel that uh, any any role that we have, and we do think we have a role in climate change, it relates to our existing mandates, and, and our existing mandates are really uh, prudential regulation of financial institutions. We expect them, and the public will expect us to expect them to understand and be in a position to manage their risks. So that's physical risk and it's transition risk for climate. And by the way, the large financial institutions are doing this already. And, and you know, we're, we're that's, we think that's right within our mandate. There's also a financial stability question, question that the overall stability of the financial system. Uh, and so from that standpoint, we can do research. We can try to help understand what will the pathways be through which climate change affects the economy, both physical risk and transition risk. But that's what we that's what we can do and that's what we will do and we'll we'll do it well within within the frame of our existing mandates we'll do it well we're, we, we're not the people who will decide the national strategy on climate change that has to be elected people and uh and and not not so much us but we we feel like we have that that narrow mandate and we will we will do it well thank you great thank you victoria guida at politico Hi, Chair Powell. Um, so the Fed recently announced that there's going to be new conflict of interest rules for um, investments by Fed officials. And um, this follows obviously the, the resignation of two regional Fed presidents. And I'm just wondering, do you think that there's more that you will need to do to rebuild the credibility of the Fed, um, such as you know requiring officials to put their assets in blind trusts? And also, if you could speak to whether you have any concerns that um, any rules or laws were broken by Fed officials. Thank you. So we, you know, we, let me, let me just say that this system, the ethics system we had in place, we had been in place for decades and had, as far as we know, served us, served us well. And then that was no longer the case. And so we, we had no moment of denial about that. Uh, as a group, we stepped in and we took the actions that we took. Um, and, you know, within one FOMC cycle, we, we announced a new set of rules to, uh, you know, to try to uh, uh, put us back where we need to be, which is we need to have the complete trust of the American people that we're working in their interest all the time. Absolutely critical to our work, as it is for any government agency. And I feel like this this called that into question. So we we reacted. I I would characterize it strongly and and forcefully. Um, if there were other things that we could do that that were reasonable, we would certainly do them. So you asked about blind trusts. Um, the you know the overall authority for ethics f around these issues in the federal government is the Office of Government Ethics (OGE), and they have a a long held position. Uh, which is not favorable to blind trusts. They do not encourage them. They, they don't think they're effective. They think they're cumbersome and and uh, and they think there are better ways to get at the things that need to be done. And, and those are the things that we're actually doing. So there, I don't know that there are any blind trusts for that reason, because they are the they're the irregular. They say this on their website. If you look um, in terms of laws broken, uh, you know, that's I, I asked the inspector general to to look to see whether there were rules broken. And whether there were laws broken, and I won't speculate on that. But that is that is that is with the inspector general now, and of course, out of my hands. Thank you. We'll go to Mike McKee at Bloomberg. Uh, 
Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, the critics of your patience policy argue that given the long and variable lags with which monetary policy works, that you are likely to end up, given inflation, by having to raise rates faster and farther than you would have liked and therefore send the economy into recession. Given the fact that basically your forecast has been chasing inflation over the last year and now you're talking about it not coming down till the second or third quarter, why would they be wrong in thinking that? Well, so let me say uh, what's happened, and we're very, very straightforward about it, is that inflation has come in higher than expected, and uh, bottlenecks have, have been more persistent and more prevalent. We see that just like everybody else does, and we see that they're now on track to persist well into next year. That was not expected, not expected by us, not expected by other macro forecasters. Now, let me say, you know, it's difficult enough to just forecast the economy in normal times. When you're talking about, you know, global supply chains in turmoil, it's a whole different thing. And you're talking about a, a pandemic that's holding people out of out of the labor force for reasons that we we can we can sample but we can't we don't have a lot of experience with this so it's very very difficult to forecast and and not easy to set policy so we have to set policy though so that's what we're doing and you know so to, to look at your question this way I, I don't think that we're behind the curve i actually believe that policy is well positioned to address the range of plausible outcomes and and that's what we need to do. I, I do think it would be premature to raise rates today. That that is that does that's not. I don't think that's controversial. Certainly, uh, I don't know anyone arguing for that today. But and the reason is that there's there's still ground to cover to get to maximum employment, and we don't want to stop that when when there's good reason to think. There's still good reason to think, although it's been delayed. Clearly, there's good reason to think that the economy will reopen, particularly if we do get past you know significant outbreaks of COVID, that's when we're really gonna see what the, what the characteristics of the labor market are. And you know, I, I think that, you know, the bottlenecks that we're seeing in global supply chains around goods, and frankly now at our own domestic ports because demand is stronger than the capacity of those ports, those things are gonna work themselves out. We have a flexible economy. It'll take some time, but you know, it took, it, it took uh, uh, you know, the experts managed to create a vaccine faster than, than certainly than I expected. And I think this stuff will work itself out over the course of next year. That is my my uh, baseline understanding, and that's very widely held among among people. But, you know, we are prepared for different eventualities, and we will use our tools to achieve price stability and maximum employment. And you know, we're going to let the data lead us to where we need to go. We, our policy will adapt and has already adapted. Uh, to the changing understanding of inflation and of bottlenecks and, and the whole supply side story, which is also partly a demand story. So our policy will, will continue to adapt as is appropriate. Thank you. Let's go to Nancy Marshall-Genzer at Marketplace. Hi, Paul. Hi, Chair Paul. Thanks for taking our questions. The market's liking this a lot, by the way. We're at a rate of starting at $15 billion a month. And that's more than twice the pace of the last taper. So why are you tapering faster this time? The uh, the economy is in a, quite a different place than when we tapered back in. I guess it was 2013. Um, we were much farther away from maximum employment. Uh, inflation was much lower. 
this is an economy where demand is very, very strong, very strong, and job openings substantially exceed the number of, of, un, of unemployed people. So the need for further stimulus is far less than it was uh, in 2013, where we still had quite a ways to go. I mean, after we began that taper, it was still many years before we reached uh, what I would characterize as conditions consistent with maximum employment, let alone price stability. So this is quite a different situation. And you know, the committee unanimously uh, felt today that we had met the test that we'd articulated, and this was appropriate. And and um, this is faster than than uh, you know than what people had expected uh, six months ago. It's it's earlier and faster, and that's that's because our as I mentioned, our policy has been adapting to the situation as it evolves. As it's this right here, in my opinion, is a result of him saying that demand is very strong and the economy is basically doing way better than it's doing than it did in 2013. Thank you. Let's go to Mike Derby. I, uh, yeah, thank you for taking my question. I wonder if the Fed has given any thoughts yet to the uh, end game for the balance sheet in terms of, you know, once you get the taper process complete, will you hold the balance sheet steady or will you allow it to start passively winding down? And then in a related question, uh, do you have any greater insight into what Fed bond buying actually does for the economy in terms of its economic impact? Have you been able to, you know, measure it or quantify it in any, any fashion, um, you know, because I'm sure you know there's often been questions about what is bond buying actually doing to help the economy? Sure. So in terms of the balance sheet, those questions that you mentioned, we, we haven't uh, gone back to them. Now that we've tapered, I expect that that's exactly what we'll do in coming meetings. And we'll do it in an orderly fashion. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about reinvestment and all those things. And, um, and we don't have to make decisions on those yet. But, you know, typically when we're doing a new subject like that, we'll have a series of briefings and discussions and that's what we will now begin to do. In terms of the effect of, um, of asset purchases on the economy, so there's a, a tremendous amount of research and scholarship on this. And, and you know, you can kind of, uh, you can find different people coming out with different views, but I, I would say most mainstream view would be that you're at the effect of lower bound. So how do you affect longer term rates? There are two ways. One, you, so you can't lower rates. Let's say, let's say you can't lower rates any further, hypothetically. So you can, you can give forward guidance. You can say, we're gonna keep uh, the rate, rates low for a period of time, either a specific period until certain conditions are met. The markets will do the math and that'll have an effect on longer term borrowings, even, even you know, 10, 30 years out kind of thing. So that's one thing. The other thing you can do is you just go buy those securities, buy longer term securities. That will drive down longer term rates and hold them lower, and you know, rates right across the right across the rate spectrum matter for borrowers. So lower rates encourage more borrowing, encourage more economic activity. People check out this screen from a few minutes ago: Goldman Sachs 420, Citigroup 69. Do with the short end. Uh, so that that's that was discussed long before anybody did it. That was I think Milton Friedman said that that was what you could do if you were pinned at the lower bound many many years ago. So anyway, that's that's how it's supposed to work, and you know, the, the it's it's quite hard to be precise about these things because you know you only have one economy and you can't run two different economies right next to each other and do a scientific experiment but most people find most of the findings are that that it, that it does support economic activity in the way that you would expect which is to say at the margin more economic activity with lower rates which is why we do what we do more 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 accommodative financial conditions lead to more economic activity over time with a lag so i think that's that's uh 
the main finding I would I would I would say on on QE. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to Paul LaMonica at CNN. Chair Powell, Chair Powell, you've addressed already uh, questions about the uh, the stock purchases that took place from some of the regional Fed presidents, oh, and uh, you know, addressing the American people to make sure that they can trust the Fed. I was wondering, also, in light of the fact that you know we now have questions about your own future, whether or not President Biden will nominate you for a second term, what would you say to the president and to senators that potentially you know, will be voting on a renomination about this specifically with regards to your future as a as Fed chair for a possible second term. So I'm not going to I won't have any I will answer your question, Paul, but I, I, I'm not going to have any comment whatsoever on on the renomination process at all. I, I, I will say, though, that I have briefed uh, administration officials and I've briefed uh, people on Capitol Hill uh in detail about what we did and why we did it and seeking their feedback getting their reaction but i i you know this is part of part of my job is to, congress has oversight over over the fed and we take that very seriously so if you're on if you're on our uh, one of the two committees that that has oversight over us then i'm in regular contact with you probably and you know when something like this comes up i'm on the phone i'm offering to meet with you and explain it to you and answer your questions and and identify any concerns people might have that's just part of my job. So I, I do that. I, I don't talk about particular conversations, but you can assume I'll always do that. And I certainly did it in, in this case. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Hannah Lang at the American Banker. Hi, uh, I wanted to ask about the supplementary leverage ratio. Is the Fed still planning on seeking comment on ways to permanently adjust that? And how concerned are you ultimately about banks' willingness to intermediate in the treasury markets without a permanent fix? So I don't have anything for you on, on supplemental leverage ratio right now. We are looking at, at ways to, um, if there are ways we can address liquidity issues through that channel. We're also we also have a um, there's a, a a working group at headed by Treasury about over over Treasury markets and what happened in in the uh, in the acute phase of the pandemic and what structural things uh, may need to be done. So that would be part of that uh, part of that work stream. And I, I I know that there's a lot going on. I'm not sure when that report will be out, um, but so it's it's work underway. That's one of the many issues that, that are part of that, along with things like central clearing of treasuries, greater central clearing, and, and you know many other ideas. It's it's important that we have a liquid treasury market. It been, it's a it's a huge public benefit that we do, and you know I, I think we need to uh, do those things that that enable that. While, you know while also assuring safety and soundness of our largest financial institutions, who tend to be the main dealers. So. We, we have to make sure that, that, that that's always a first order concern as well. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Brian Chung at Yahoo Finance. Hi, Chairman Powell, uh, Brian Chung, Yahoo Finance. So just to expand on the ethics conversation, uh, you talked about how you engage with people uh, on Capitol Hill and in the administration. You talked about what you've done already, but I'm just wondering if you could take a step back and just assess whether or not there was reputational damage as a result of that, either from the public's view or from the financial community's view of the Federal Reserve's independence? And then secondly, do you look back on the whole episode and have thoughts on your individual responsibility in preventing something like this uh, from having happened? So I, 
you know, it's I think it's too soon to say what the reputational damage is. I think from the very beginning, uh, my reaction was we need to deal with this straightforwardly, transparently and forcefully. And that's what we're going to do. I mean, it's it, it, it means everything to me that we take do whatever it takes to to make sure that nothing like this happens again. And I I like to think we've made a real good start on that. If you think about it, you 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 cannot execute a trade unless it's pre-cleared. And then you have to you have to say execute. It's not even a trade. Really, really, there's no trading going on. This is for investment uh, and you know getting liquidity for life's expenses. But you then have to wait 45 days uh, to actually execute that that sale or purchase. So I I think it's a pretty good system. We're, we'll always be looking to uh, to make it better. Uh, so in terms of our independence, you know, I I. I Look, I think we we will address this, and I think we have, and I like to think it's enough. But it's going to, you know, we we're we're just beginning to implement it. We have to write the rules, which we're doing, you know, as quickly as possible. We need more. Heads up! I'm going to probably transition right into market close uh, after this. Yeah, I'll also do a summary of all the notes that I've taken here, and uh, post that separately. But you'll see me talk about it in just a moment. Far, far fewer of them will be will be covered by this, but the senior officers uh, who are who will be covered by this will you know will have to have techn technology access and it's going to have to work efficiently. So there's a lot of work to do to to implement it. You know, I, again, I would just say <clears throat> um, this system has been in place for decades, and I, I it was in place when I took over. It was in place for the last at least the last three or four chairs, and and you know. It, it, it was what it was, uh, and you know it proved to have weaknesses in it. And part of that was that it wasn't uni uniformly enforced across the system. I'm a big believer in the value of the Federal Reserve System and the reserve banks, but you had 12 different ethics officers at 12 different banks, and you had ethics people here, and you know compliance wasn't it wasn't all exactly the same. It was it was a little bit different and uneven. And, and also the rule. I'm just going to say like this whole like compliance thing, like, gosh, just make disclosures instantaneous. And this would be much less of an issue. Like he mentioned it himself, 45 days to disclose. Specifics of our rules. They were clearly not in compliance with the part of our rules that said. Get to talking about the economy, like have, have this discussion somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, that's that's clear. This was a bad appearance. So um, anyway, what, what can we do? We, we, we are where we are. It happened. And we just have to deal with it forthrightly and transparency and own it and uh, step up to this, you know, meet this moment. That's I'm, I'm totally committed to doing that. And uh, again, if there if there are better ideas, I want I'd love to hear them. But I think we've we, I think we have so far um, made a good start. When you say you spoke with administration officials, did that include the president? I, I'm not going to I'm not going to answer who I spoke to at all. Uh, I just I'm not going to I'm not going to give you any names. So don't take that as a yes or no. I'm just not going to start down that road. Okay, thank you. We're going to go to Jeff Cox for the last question. Last question. All right, let's go. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chair. I just want to dig a little bit deeper on employment. Um, we, we've seen what's been called the uh, the, the great resignation um, with the, uh, folks leaving their jobs in record numbers. Um, is, is there any feeling there that maybe um, you've been accused of fighting the last war that perhaps the labor dynamics have changed um, in, in the post-COVID environment and that uh, full employment 
may not look like what it looked like before? Yeah, good question. Yeah, so <clears throat> what's happening is people are leaving their jobs. They're quitting their jobs in uh, all-time high numbers, but in many cases going back into employment and getting higher wages. So a lot of the higher wages you're seeing are for job switchers rather than incumbents. <clears throat> so that's just that's a sign of a, of a really strong labor market as opposed to people just running off and quitting. There have also been, there, there are a significant number of retirements and we'll just have to see what that means. So toward, toward the end of the last cycle, which was the longest in, in our recorded economic history, we did see um, labor force participation moving up well above what, what economists estimate was the trend. Um, and part of that was people staying in the labor force older and older, just not retiring at the rates they were expected to retire. So maybe this was just catch up on that. Um, I am a believer that over time, you, you won't know how far, you won't know what can happen with labor force participation in advance. And you're just gonna have to give it some time because we, we saw that over and over. There are things that we can, where we can say, you know, this is where, this is where the limit is. Labor force participation is a much more flexible uh, subject uh, for me. And so I, I do think we need to be humble about about what the limits are of labor force participation. But we, we expect labor force participation to, participation to pick up. We don't know the pace at which it will do so. <clears throat> so in terms of full employment, um, as, as I discussed earlier, I think at the very beginning of the recovery, the natural thing to do was to look back at labor condition, labor market conditions. Dude, he is so ready for a beer after this longest expansion in our history. It was so much to like about that labor market, a really historically good labor market, never perfect, but a good labor market. We're in a different world now. It's, this is a, um, uh, it's just very different. Um, the, the pandemic uh, recession was the deepest and the recovery has been the fastest and wages didn't really go down and you know, real incomes were more than fully replaced by fiscal policy. All of this is completely unusual. You know, the, an economy where inflation was driven by, by services is now inflation where all the inflation is in goods, which have had negative inflation for a quarter century. So you ask about full employment. <clears throat> I think we have to, I'm, I'm very open to the thought that, that it's going to be uh, an empirical question of where it is located. And we're just gonna learn more and more. I mean, one thing we'll learn, I think, I hope we'll learn in the next, in the near term, is once the Delta variant really does continue to decline, what's going to happen to employment? Are we going to start to see over the winter, you know, significant increases in jobs again? If you look back, the three, six, and nine month average job creation is between 550, 550,000 and 600,000. So if you think of that as a, as a stronger, you don't have to think back to the million job months of, of June and July. You can just think, okay, 550 to 600. If we, if we should get back on that path, then we would be making good progress. And, and we'd like to see that, of course. So we'll, we'll know so much more. And believe me, we understand it's a, it's a different world in so many ways. Um, and uh, we're, we're very open to that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And thank you all for joining us thank today. You. That is the Alrighty. end. Alrighty, let's go ahead and review what Jay Powell just said. Uh, then we're going to ride right into market close and earnings. Do stick around because we got some fun earnings coming up. The Cheesecake Factory is reporting earnings. I believe Matterport's today, Roku, Etsy, Qcom, Fastly. 
take two interactive skills sun power ea mgm keys man fisker how am i gonna cover all of these let's go daddy oh my gosh uh yeah this is this is a lot is matterport today I, that's the one i don't see on this particular list here but i do know all the other ones i read off are today matterport uh hmm. i don't know if matterport is oh yeah expected to report on 11.3 that is today okay good so uh those are a lot of earnings so we'll talk about uh those stocks in just a moment but uh first let's go ahead and do a, a recovery or a summary here of what jay powell just said okay Cool. So give me one moment. Oh, man. That was exhausting. <laughs> okay. Here we go. <clears throat> hey, everyone. Me, Kevin, here. Here's a summary of everything Jerome Powell just said and announced. So first, the taper schedule is out. We are going from $120 billion a month of stimulus money. That's money being printed and injected into the economy at a rate of $80 billion to treasuries, $40 billion to mortgage-backed securities, which just think of those as slices of mortgages sold off as bonds. So you're paying interest to bondholders, not to banks. But anyway, uh, this $120 billion pot is being reduced by $15 billion, $10 billion off of treasuries, $5 billion off of mortgage-backed securities. Expecting to reduce this $15 billion in November, $15 billion in December. Those two have been decided and are likely expecting to see the taper continue at a rate of $15 billion each month thereafter. That would put us around June when we would be completely tapered. Jerome Powell does not want to talk about liftoff or when interest rates will actually go up until we have completely tapered because otherwise he sees that as a, like it doesn't make sense. That'd be cognitive dissidence to be printing money and stimulating the economy at the same time as making that money more expensive by raising rates. He doesn't see that as logical. So they're going to complete their taper first, which there was a reference. And this becomes very, very important. There was a reference to Jerome Powell. Why are you tapering at twice the rate that you tapered at when we first had a taper in 2013? Uh, and he said his response was actually very bullish. He said, in this economy, demand is very strong. Job openings are plenty. And we are still years from 20, uh, I mean, we that we are today years from the 2013 levels uh, that we were in, uh, in, in a very positive way. That is, in 2013, the economy still had to grow for years to get to levels of demand where it is now. This was really bullish. And we actually saw stocks like Tesla and the S&P 500 right when that comment was made by Jerome Powell that demand is very strong. We, we saw markets move up. Markets like this. So far, markets have been pretty optimistic about all the things that were talked about here. We did have a shift in the verbiage that's used uh, in the Fed statements. We shifted from using the word transitory to expecting inflation to be transitory and spending more time talking about the rationale as to why the Fed believes that inflation is going to go down. And so this helps make the Fed seem a lot less tone deaf about uh, inflation happening. You know, when, when they're like, oh, yeah, inflation's transitory and inflation data is coming in really, really high. And we expect inflation data to come in high in quarter one and quarter two. Then it makes the Fed seem like they're, they're morons. Uh, which some of you may still believe is true, you know, regardless. But anyway, now they're talking about how, look, we expect inflation to rotate down in the second and third quarter of 2022. It's taking longer than anybody forecast uh, in, in markets that they talk to. That is their market participants or their forecasters thought uh, they're seeing this inflation take longer to rotate down. But they do think that in the second and third quarter, inflation will rotate down. 
And that'll come at the perfect point when the taper has completed. And then the Fed will say, okay, good. The taper has completed. Now we're in a position where we could talk about raising rates. How much inflation do we actually have left now that we're in June of 2022? Uh, how much inflation is left? Do we actually have to aggressively raise rates or can we take our time with raising rates because maybe the Fed was right and inflation did end up inflecting to the downside in the second and third quarter of 2022, uh, which by the way, gives us, in my opinion, a little bit of a time frame for crypto, that crypto is still going to enjoy the benefit of high inflation readings for Q4, uh, Q4 uh, Q1 and Q2, but that, in, that inflection might not come around until that summer, that midpoint of 2022. So we'll keep an eye on that, obviously. All right. Uh, then uh, he talks about, uh, let's see here, uh, a lot of different things. Let's let's just get into the summary of some of these things. So household and business investments flattened in October. However, uh, businesses and households have very strong uh, financials or in strong financial conditions. Sees COVID receding further and that growth should actually pick up from last month. In, in this quarter here, which last month is still part of this quarter, but growth should pick up. And that's because we're escaping that Delta surge that we had in August and a little bit of September that also led the markets to really soften uh, and, and spending to soften. He says that the uh, pace of economic growth as a result of that has slowed. But again, we're expecting that to go up. We're expecting to see job gains closer to averages. Averages are somewhere around 550 to 600,000 in jobs gains. Last two months, we've been in the 100,000s. And in the summer, we in June, July, we were at a million jobs. So uh, we've got some work to do. And hopefully this Friday, we get some positive news on jobs data. This Friday, uh, that's in two days, we will be getting the jobs report. 4.8% uh, unemployment. He believes understates the amount of unemployment there actually is. He thinks there's more employment or unemployment, and that's because people have left the labor force. Uh, you've got more re uh, retirements, less participation. Uh, participation amongst prime-aged workers is down. Some of this could be due to be uh, due to fears of COVID, uh, having stronger financial positions in households because household wealth has gone up via real estate and stocks, or potentially because people are still caring for older family or children who cannot get COVID vaccinated yet. Now, others including Barron's, make actually the opposite argument that the Federal Reserve is overstating how much unemployment there is because the Fed is actually not properly able to track how much new business creation there is and how many people are just going off and working for themselves. And that right now, comparing right now to 2019, we're creating 50% more businesses every single month than we did in 2019. Uh, and, and that pace was pretty strong during the pandemic as well. It was, it was even higher. Anyway, uh, he does mention that, uh, and so anyway, the point of that is is really that you could potentially have the Fed missing the boat on employment, that employment is actually much higher than it looks according to their numbers. So they think employment is actually, the employment reports are worse, and Barron's thinks, no, they could actually be better than you think. So we're kind of in opposite directions there on jobs. And that could have a big factor in inflation. Even though we expect consumer price inflation to go down next summer, we actually don't expect wages and rents to go down. So you're going to have this sort of negative growth of prices, in my opinion, on things like cars, uh, you know, uh, durables like washing machines or appliances or computers or hardware or whatever and chips you're gonna see prices of these things come down but i think you'll probably still see wages and rents trickle up which will still contribute to inflation right 
Jerome Powell does say that uh, high inflation does propose some difficulties for those who can, uh, can't afford or don't have the means to afford essentials like food and transportation. He says that uh, our tools cannot solve supply issues. However, over time, we believe we can support the economy to essentially lead that inflation to come down so that those supply chain issues uh, become more normal. He indicates also that they have a completely different set and more stringent requirements outlined for when they're going to raise rates. Again, we don't expect that to happen at all until some point next year, uh, probably the third or fourth quarter of 2022 for the first sort of rate increase. And that's going to depend on how much inflation goes down by the summer. That'll be the big indicator. Uh, he does believe that supply bottlenecks will last well into next year, but we expect that inflation to go down in the second or third quarter. He says we could be patient. No direct signal is being given on rates. And he doesn't believe that we're going to see a wage price spiral where prices are going up. Therefore, wages are going to spiral up. And because wages are spiraling up, now prices have to go up because he sees productivity still is increasing, which is good. He didn't want to give exact conditions for what they mean by max employment. But I think a lot of this is just going to have to do with waiting out to see how supply chain issues change over the next six months before we get to a potential talk about raising rates. Now, uh, then Jerome Powell mentions that if anything changes in the economy, he will use whatever tools he has available. So if they have to adjust the pace of taper, that is taper faster because inflation is lasting even longer or taper slower because inflation is starting to uh, subside, then uh, he will do so. Obviously, if they needed to raise rates immediately because inflation just exploded, they could just taper 100% tomorrow uh, with emergency action jump rates immediately if they needed to, if they just missed the boat that badly. And I would expect something like that would, would probably lead to some panic in the market, though it doesn't look like that is something the market's really anticipating or expecting right now. Otherwise, we'd see bond yields higher. Bond yields right now not really reacting uh, as, as much as you would think, because when the Fed starts talking about tapering, it means they put less pressure on bond prices, which means bond prices go down, which means yields go up. And the yields haven't really gone up. I mean, the 10-year 1.59, it's kind of where it's been sitting for the last like two or three months here. Uh, it's uh, maybe not two or three months, but at least the last two months, it's been sitting a little flat there. But anyway, uh, okay, then we have uh, a little bit of talk about how uh, labor dynamics have certainly changed, but that Jerome Powell actually thinks we could end up seeing a winter bump uh, or winter, yeah, winter bump in, in jobs that if we don't have a COVID surge this winter, we might see hiring explode this winter. And if hiring explodes this winter, then we could uh, we could end up having uh, getting to max unemployment or sorry, max employment sooner. And that would be good for not only GDP growth, but potentially dealing with our supply chain issues. Remember, folks, if, if Amazon can hire more workers or, or logistics companies can hire more workers, it means we can actually clear our supply chain issues faster. So in a crazy way, even though sometimes the market's like, oh my gosh, we're adding so many jobs. Are we overheating? We want to see jobs added because the more jobs get added, the more hands we have on the supply chain issues, people stocking shelves, people distributing, people taking stuff off container ships, whatever, right? Uh, or taking containers off of ships, whatever. And uh, and then, uh, then we can work our way through these supply chain issues faster. And that means the more we get people employed, the sooner we can actually see those supply chain issues abate. We're still going to see those wage pressures going up, but we'll, we should start seeing those consumer prices come down substantially. And that would be really nice uh, for markets. Of course, until that happens, we expect cryptocurrencies to do very, very well uh, through uh, around the middle of 2022. 
I, I still support sort of the position that I have for crypto, which is 20% Bitcoin, 40% uh, Ethereum, and 40% Cardano. I have a little bit of rebalancing to do because I'm transitioning between wallets right now. And I just paid off all my margin, but I just wanted to give an update on that, that I still feel that way. So, uh, okay, good. That, uh, that gives us a breakdown of what Jerome Powell just said and what happened at the Federal Reserve. Let's uh, now move on. So thanks for watching this portion. Let's get to the next portion. Okay, good. So that's what Jerome Powell just said. Now we are going to get to earnings and the other good stuff. So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Let's take a peek here at, uh, let's listen to a little bit of commentary and then we'll get to the sticks here for a moment. I just want to hear their commentary for a moment. Free pandemic is no longer on the table. He's going to let the data tell him what full employment is. Uh-huh. Thank you oh. to Sarah, Paul, and David for joining us uh, These are just today to discuss what is now what session highs reaction to uh, the Fed taper announcement. Yeah, buying stocks, selling bonds, and the dollar. We've got a big hour of earnings coming your way. Etsy, yeah. Electronic Arts, Qualcomm, Roku, and more set to report. We'll bring you the results as soon as they cross. And as we had to break a check for you on bonds following the Fed decision, tenure yield around 159 session high was just above 160 so again selling those bonds with yields higher no change in the fed rate hike probabilities in the in the bond market still expecting first hike around next july we'll be right back boom all right give me one second here all right there we go. Okay, good. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the sticks and see how things are doing. Okay, so this is the uh, the S&P 500 right here for you. Uh, take a look at this. This was when the rate decision came out right here. And uh, this is what happened after the rate decision. We really nicely trended up. And uh, look at us kind of bounce off of the, uh, the trend line that we have here. But now we're uh, kind of flattening a little bit intraday here. So uh, very, very nice here, though, on the S&P 500. Very good, up about a nice half percent here. We've got lots of earnings to cover today. And right now we've got Bed Bath running on that stock buyback news. We've got Uber up 6.5%, C3AI 7. Looking for opportunities in the market here. Actually interesting to see C3AI move again. Remember folks, rising tide tends to lift all boats. Look at uh, something like C3AI. C3AI, let me see here, has uh, obviously done nothing. It is sitting at... Uh, Pretty low levels of volatility, uh, not not here at record lows, but uh, you know it's it's basically just flattened down uh, substantially, and uh, yeah, it makes you wonder if C three AI. I wonder when their earnings are. Let's see here, their last earnings were not good. C three AI earnings. C three AI. I don't know. Does anyone know when they report earnings? So probably is an easier way to pull this up, but uh, than what I'm doing right now. But oh well. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Oh, here, let me see. Maybe I could just type in it. Oh, calendar, eco. No, cal. Let's try that. Because C3AI, this is one that I've eco calendar. Here we go. Let's try this. Uh, if anybody else has the date on C3AI, that'd be awesome. Oh, they did September first. Did they already? Well, that's wasn't that their Q2. So they should be up again here soon, right? Because you have the uh, July, August, September. So they should be reporting here sometime in November. November 30th. Okay. Thank you. Uh, but anyway, so September 30th for C3AI. Uh, if you look at calls, 
Let's see here. You go to calls. Go to like December calls, let's say. And you, you, oh my gosh, really? Hold on a sec. Mm, uh, really? Hold on a second here. Wow. Oh, seven twenty. That's not bad. I'm gonna buy these. I like this a lot. Let's just see what happens. It's this is a this is a a little play on the rising tide in the market. Hold on, let me see if that went through. I'll I'll explain this in a second. But sometimes I place these orders and then they don't go through and it's like lol. Did it go through? I don't think it went through. Dude, come on, Weeble. Weeble sucks. Bye. There we go. There we go. Okay, good. Now it went through. All right, I'm going to explain this. So uh, this is a this is really a bet on the market. Hold on, let me tag this really quick. Uh, okay, buying, buying December AI call. Okay. Okay, 52. So, yeah. Okay, good. So, what what I'm doing on this one is uh the so volatility is relatively low on this one. It's it's gone up a little bit, but obviously we've been in a slow bleed, right? Now, the pace of the bleed has substantially slowed down. And what's really interesting is you can buy this December uh, in the money call here, and you're really only paying, as long as it doesn't fall below 45, you're really only paying $52.20 for this. I paid $52.19. And the stock price right now is $49.30. So basically, if I'm paying $52.19 uh, here, uh, I'm taking more risk in, in that it's an option, but I'm exposing my I'm exposing less overall of my money uh, to the stock in general. But still, we're at what are we at? We're at 49 something right now. It's 49.29, 49.29. So if I divide by this, it shows me how much the stock has to go up just to break even if I held the stock to expiration. Uh, where is it? C3, yeah, 29, there we go. So right now the stock has to go up about 6% between now and December. And if I held the option through expiration, it breaks even. I'll write that down. Uh, if I hold through expiration and stock one safe. Okay, good. So, uh, Obviously, I always I'm sorry. I take a moment there because I always send out alerts. Anytime I, I find stuff I find interesting, I'll uh, I send alerts in the Stocks and Psychology Money Group, whether it's I'm buying it or uh, or closing out a contract. But anyway, I think it's interesting. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on it because it it has bled out so much. Uh, it had it had rough earnings last time. It's not a company that I really want to own long term, uh, but uh, and that's because I don't understand the company as well as I believe I should. 
Uh, I've done a lot of research on the company. I think I have a good grasp on the company. Uh, there's a good chance I might even just try to lift, sell out of it before earnings. But to me, there's to me this is pulling a little bit of a lemonade, where uh, oh, there's some of my lemonade shares. Uh, so with lemonade, let me get that out of the way so we can actually look at the chart here. There we go. Okay, so with Lemonade, you have this interesting thing as well where it's kind of been slow bleeding down here substantially, and it's starting to move on really no news. It's moving because it's a leftover cheapie, and the market does that. When the market starts hitting all-time highs at things like Tesla or other companies, the leftover cheapies do well. Look at Robinhood. Robinhood's up 5.9%. Do you think there was a catalyst for that? No, it's just relative to how expensive other things are getting, people are parking their new money at some of the stocks that are selling for a discount right now. Very, very normal. I don't think they announced carbon shirt. Really? Hold on. I didn't, I didn't see any news for it, but maybe I missed it because I know they've been, they've had their car insurance that's coming soon for a while. I didn't know there was actually news on it. Uh, Oh, did they, did they finally announce their car insurance? But that's the whole reason I've been in there too. Ha! No way. Lemonade launches car product today. Yeah, you're right. So there is news. Okay. But anyway, then for Robinhood or the other ones, there's no news. But uh, this is really good. I uh, That's funny. It says new instead of really. Oh, thank you. So one of the reasons, by the way, I put a bunch of money in Lemonade and I have options in Lemonade is because I've been waiting for the car insurance product to launch. Because I thought people would see this as, oh my gosh, it's the millennial version of Google. And I thought there was a good chance that uh, the stock would run after the announcement. I don't really care about the earnings that it'll have. Oh yeah, look at that. Oh wow, that's great. They finally launched it. Oh, that's really exciting. That's smart. Finally. Okay, yeah, this is what I was waiting for. That's great. Okay. But anyway, uh, so I think the market is also going to be more uh, enthusiastic about broadly other companies as well. And so they, the market might respond more positively to news when news does come out because the companies, it's kind of like anytime there's news, think about it as investors and hedge funds looking at companies like, oh, they have that kind of news. Okay, cool. So what, uh, uh, what do we think about it? Oh, well, it's relatively cheap compared to where it has been. Uh, and so, uh, so, so the stock's potentially more likely to move up uh, after uh, after being sold off for a while. So that's cool. Lemonade was up fifteen percent of market open. Is that true? Wow. Oh wow. Yeah. Look at that. Oh look at that. It ran up to a, a, a resistance line that we had. That's funny. I've had that resistance line here forever, and it just literally touched it this morning. See, that would have been the time to sell right there. And that line was here before this live stream. <laughs> Y'all know that. Uh, that's crazy. Well, if Kevin was actually here for the freaking market open, we could have looked at that line. But Kevin was Kevin was was wasn't here. Idiot. Anyway, I, I want to go on a streak. Can I get sixty nine days in a row of market open live streams? <laughs> that's what we need. Uh, sixty nine days in a row, and, and then you get a break. But have to be have to be good in a row for sixty nine days. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, good. Yeah, that's uh, that's fun. So good news on on uh, lemonade. I uh, 
what I think is really very interesting that could happen with Lemonade is you could see multiple analyst upgrades for the stock over the next couple months. And I don't think they report earnings anytime soon, which I really don't want them to report earnings anytime soon. Lemonade earnings. But uh, it could be very bullish for uh, analysts. Oh, earnings released November 8th. Uh, that's soon. That's that's Monday. Uh, it could be bullish for the stock over the next few days as new companies release research and reports on uh, how much this could actually affect uh, Lemonade's income. So that's bullish. Very good. All right, so let's see. Coinbase is Friday. Nice. Okay, good. Let's see what else we have. <laughs> okay, QuantumScape, 8.85%. Chegg, 6.4%. Yeah, Lemonade's at 6 QuantumScape. So I wonder if Quantum had news. Quantum scape and outlet 6.44. Lemonade is at six. Robinhood, okay, we saw these. Cardano at 206. Stephen Busters 4.38. Corsair 423. Affirm's back 3%. Nice job, Affirm. Whoa, Tesla's almost up 3%. 2.77. Awesome. Oh, that's great. Let's see here. Uh, Tesla. Yeah, I have a sold put on Tesla for twelve hundred bucks this uh, this Friday. So that's juicy. That's well, at least now it is. As long as it closes under over twelve hundred. Uh, Zillow grew, and then then we'll wheel it again. It's gonna be fun. Day 10 of the Tesla rally. <laughs> oh, EXPI down now, 10.59%. I don't think that's justified. EXPI is absolutely killing it. I think they're caught up in this uh, real estate sell-off. So is Redfin. Let me see what their volatility is like. Today it's probably up. Yeah, today it's up. Not as high as it has been before. But uh, definitely elevated. I wonder what sold puts look like on this. Let's go to let's look at some 16 day sold puts at 45. It's pretty much at the money here. I get two bucks, 225 uh, plus a little bit of insulation. So call it three dollars divided by 45. I mean that's a six percent six point. If you don't end up getting assigned on this, that's a six point six percent return in uh, you know 17 days. And you can't go shorter, unfortunately, but what you could do is you could go down to 40 to insulate yourself a little bit more, but then you're only going to get 70 cents. Uh, it would give you more insulation, though. So 70 cents, that'd be more like what? It's a little less than 2%, but you have the insulation. That's not bad. If you wanted to own more EXP, it'd be a consideration. But yeah, look look at Zillow and EXPI. They're just bleeding into the close. Ah, Zillow's actually popping off a little bit again. A little bit of buy the dip happening here. Zillow's the one that makes you wonder if you should buy some, or sell some puts on. See, if I go into Zillow, and let's say I sell some $60 puts, gives me a little bit of insulation. 
Uh, I'm only going to get 70 cents on that. That's lame. It should be more than that. Okay, what about 65? Three bucks? Man, that's not that good. If you go out to next week. Next week at 60. Ooh, look at this. Next Friday at $60. That gets you 255 divided by 60. And then you have the insulated factor as well. Without the fact that you're you're basically $5 out of the money here, which is good. That's that's actually nice. Plus the fact that you're 489 over here. That's not bad. That's the one that's juicy. I might do this one. Uh, let's see here. How, how much do we want? 60 times 100. Yeah, I'd, I'd consider it. No, is it even worth it though? Is it worth buying? Is it worth being on that ride for? I mean, this is to next Friday. It'd be 12k to next Friday. Uh, and I don't really want to go to 65. And this is assuming the stock's going to drop another 10%. You know? It's not horrible. The other option, let me see the vol. No, because the volatility is way up. So I don't think you really want to push calls yet. The volatility is like sky high right now. Well, I don't know. That's that's an interesting one. I don't know if it's worth it. The 12k to hide the collateral, so I probably won't do it. But it, it it's it's not horribly juicy. I mean, it's it's decently juicy. It's not horribly unjuicy, is what I meant to say. <laughs> it's decent, but uh, because I do think there's a chance that this thing's gonna pop off, you know, pop off these lows. But I wouldn't necessarily want to buy calls because the volatility is so high. I think you're gonna get ripped off on the pricing right now. But let's let's confirm that though. So if you bought calls, you know for i don't know what what are you buying it for so a friday see that's insane uh well hold on a friday at the money call uh two percent uh, that's not well for friday two bucks yeah i wouldn't want to pay that the calls a little too expensive for me could end up being a good play though if today ends up being the bottom but again volatility is extremely high and i don't really want to own it <laughs> i'd rather own expi okay what else? Where are some other opportunities? So Bed Bath, we saw Fastly's up 8% before earnings. This is almost one where it's like, did they pre-run for earnings? And does it potentially make sense to short it? I don't know. I'm not going to short it, especially after a bleed out like this. Skills reports today, up 7.5% leading up to earnings. People are getting excited to play earnings here. Where's Etsy? Etsy reports today as well. We should start writing down some estimates. Yeah, Etsy's been doing really well, but today it's down about half percent leading up to this. So where's Tesla? And then let's get some earnings estimates. Oh my gosh, Tesla, 12.13. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I guess that sell put's going to be in a great spot. You're going to have to do another sell put. Well, that's that's the, what's it called? Uh, that's the wheel. Hmm. All right. So hold on. Let me get it up here. <laughs> All righty. Let's go ahead and. 
Wow, 3.61% now. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to write down earnings. So who do we have earnings for? Well, we have earnings for lots of different companies today. We're going to start with Etsy. Yeah, the bell happens in two minutes. So Etsy, if you want to follow along, feel free to write these numbers down. Etsy is expecting an adjusted EPS of 0.673, gap of 0.564, revenue of 519, and net of 108. And Etsy's been up lately, so keep that in mind. Then we've got Roku. Ooh, that'll be interesting. Roku. So another one to write down. Two minutes to go. Uh, let's put that right here. Roku. Uh, Roku adjusted EPS is expected to be 0 0.079, gap 0 0.087. Revenue 681.1 and net of 13.4. And we have Qualcomm's coming out as well. Qcom. It's going to be fun earnings. Lots of earnings today. One minute to go. Qcom has an adjusted, we're expecting, of 2.26. Gap of 1.949. Revenue 8.858 billion net of 2.59 okay let's watch for the bell for a sec uh look at this folks tesla skyrocketing here new all-time high at two uh or 12 12 15 basically right now it's incredible you've got uh quantum up 8.66 lift and fastly up about eight along with right aid macy's up 6.8 percent i was there two days ago it was dead Outlet, 6%. Robinhood, about 6%. Uh, Lemonade, about 5.49, 6% here. Uh, AMC, 5.11. Spirit, about 5%. Cardano's up a little bit. Nordstrom's up a bit. Corsair, lots of recovery stocks moving up a bit. Lucid, up about 4%. Tesla, still sitting at that 1215 number. Playboy, MP Material, 3%. Really very green day, with the exception of the real estate ones. And Zillow's being bought into the close. The dip on Zillow's being bought. Uh, at uh, at the close, down about uh, twenty four point eight five percent right now. Across the board as well, following the paper announcement, the dovish paper announcement. It's all lower, but only a little bit lower, just two tenths of a percent or so. Equities at pretty much session high, and indeed record high. <laughs> All right, there it is. Like Sarah says, everything's green, up 0.29% on the Dow, 0.65% on the S&P, NASDAQ 1.04%, Russell 1.8% all to the upside. Uh, okay, we got big earnings coming out now. So excited to see how things uh, move here with earnings. You've got, uh, I mean, you had pretty pretty much a record close here for, for a lot of different stocks. This is very incredible. GameStop even up 5.4 percent. Uh, AMC up 5.25 percent. Incredible. Tesla, look at that, ending at 1213, uh, sitting at the same place in the after hours. Coinbase 344 again. Wow. It was really the real estate sector that got wrecked today, thanks to Zillow. Matterport was also down about 1.38 percent, and Matterport does report today. So speaking of which, let's write down what the expectations are for Matterport. We have earnings coming out within the next five minutes on multiple companies. 
lot of companies. Okay, earnings estimates. So if you're following along, feel free to write it down. And uh, we already talked about Etsy, Roku, Qualcomm. Let's write down Matterport really quick. So that way we're fast. Adjusted is expected to be 0.067% negative. Negative 0.085 on gap. Revenue is expected to be 29.15. And net is expected to be negative 19.36. Now, remember, this one ran on uh, on Metaverse News. So it could have been overbought because of the Metaverse News. Fastly. Uh, fastly. Okay, I got three minutes to go to write down some more things. So we're going to write down Fastly really quick. Fastly is expected to be negative uh, 1.185 adjusted. Gross, negative 0.499. And revenue at 83.644, along with net at negative 21.58. Okay, so those, and then of course we have skills, uh, take two interactive, multiple others, sun power. But I'm not going to be able to write all of these down. So... Uh, we're just going to go ahead and pull the news, and uh, let's let's see what we got for all these different companies. It's be exciting. All right, so Fastly's up. Roku is up. Oh, EA just came in. We'll let them present EA. Sure. So the market's been pricing in right after taping. Oh, they haven't they haven't mentioned it yet. Fine, I'll pull up EA. That was just a banner at the bottom. Okay. So I'll look at EA really quick. Since I have it up. Roku's not out yet. Fastly's not out yet. That's okay. They're not expected yet. EA comes in with 1.85 versus 1.76. That's a beat on revenue. EPS at 315 versus 316 expected. It's a one penny miss there. It's not that big of a deal though because they're that's their forecast. And their actual adjusted EPS came in at 1.58 versus 1.17 expected. That's a big beat. That's pretty good. Uh, however, their gap EPS missed. So these numbers are a little all over the place. Yeah, a little all over the place. But their revenue their revenue did beat. So I wonder how EA is doing. Uh, yeah, it's doing well. Doing well on this news. Nice revenue beat there. So some funny magic happening there probably with the bottom line numbers. Anyway, okay, Roku just came out. Uh, Roku meets estimates. Roku came in with net revenue of 680 versus the 681 expected. So a tiny little miss there on uh, Roku came in at 680. That's uh, pretty darn close, though, and uh, don't have their EPS numbers yet. Okay, so then we have Etsy. Let's see here. Okay. Etsy, and uh, Etsy has not reported just yet. Qcom, we're going to cover. Then we've got Etsy, Roku, Qcom. Okay, Qcom just came out. 2.55 adjusted EPS versus 226 expected. We had gap. Uh, well, let's see here. Q1, the forecast is coming in higher than expected. This is really good for Qcom. Revenue coming in at 9.36 versus the 8.85 expected. Uh, that's really good. So very, very good here on QCOM. So looks like QCOM's jumping about 4% in the afters. Yeah, 3 point, yeah, yeah, about 4% here. That's a good jump on QCOM. They've been trading sideways for like a year, honestly. 
Etsy just came out. Uh, Etsy merchandise sales beat estimates. No way. That's great. Yeah, they had revenue expectations of 519. They came in at 532. Let's go. Net income was expected to be, uh-oh, uh-oh, with a net missed. Net income was expected to be 108. Net came in at 89.9. So the net was not good. Uh, revenue was a B. EPS of 62. Uh, is that adjusted? I can't tell. Uh, if It depends. <laughs> it depends if that's adjusted or not adjusted. Because if gap EPS came in at 62, then it beat. But if adjusted came in at 62, then it missed. But uh, that the net revenue, it, it looks like a miss. Because they're expecting 108 and they came in at 89. But they're... Their gross revenue, their total revenue did did well. That's yeah, that explains why the stock's flat right now. Okay, now it's up two percent. Nobody knows what the hell's going on <laughs> with Etsy, so that's funny. Uh, but fine, doesn't seem to be a big catalyst in either direction. Here's Matterport. That's another big one we're waiting for. Yeah, Etsy's stable right now, which is great. Uh, Etsy Matterport announces third quarter financial results. Oh, they're not going to give me any kind of breakdown here, are they? So I have to read it myself. So Matterport, we wrote down the expectations though. Total revenue was, ah, revenue missed. Total revenue was 27.7 million. This is what I thought is that it could be too, more euphoric. Uh, they expected 29 mil. Revenue was only 27.7. That is uh, up 10% compared to the third quarter of 2020. Yeah, well, that's not that big of a deal. The problem is they have digital device sales that are going down and recurring subscriptions that are going up. And so you have a little bit of this inflection point happening right now. And they report EPS. Uh, gap loss per share was 0.86. They expected uh, 0.49. So that's a miss on revenue, a miss on the bottom line. Adjusted, they were expecting 18 cents of a loss. Only came in at 0.06% uh, as a loss. So that's not as bad. Okay, Etsy's now falling. Remember, Etsy beat on the top line. But their, uh, oh, and their forecast just came in low. That's why. Okay. Their forecast was for 691 mil. And the median consensus is somewhere around 675, 660 to 690. So that's a miss on forecast. This is just like Amazon missing forecast. Etsy's showing the missed forecast as well. So a slower Q4 than expected. Let's see. So, yeah, you're seeing a 3% shave down right now. Same thing with Matterport, shaving down about 3.5%. On uh, on a revenue and a bottom line miss. So then we have Sun Power, but also expected because we had a lot of metaverse hype build up Matterport, which there's no way that's priced in uh, into revenues, right? Okay, Sun Power comes in with revenue at two hundred twenty three point six. The estimate was. Oh, sorry, it came in with 323.6. The estimate was 329. So that's a slight miss on revenue as well. So it looks like you've had some pretty strong expectations for companies, and you're getting these slight misses here. Yeah, Sun Power down now about 6% in after hours. It's another one. Then we've got Cheesecake. Another one. And then we'll look at Fastly. Let's see here. Cheesecake's not out yet. Fastly just came out. Okay, no summary, but the stock's doing really well. So let me see if I can find it from their doc. We reported revenues of 87 million. The expectation was 83. So that's a nice beat on Fastly. 
Good job uh, on revenue. I don't have EPS numbers, though. Yeah, anyway, uh, that revenue beat really good for Fastly. And Fastly has been selling off like crazy lately. Look at that, 15%. Whoa! Good job, Fastly. Nice, uh, nice explosion there on uh, Fastly. Qualcomm up 4.3%. Cheesecake. Cheesecake hasn't reported just yet. I was just at the Cheesecake Factory, too. Is win today? I don't know what Evax is. Uh, oh, some biotech? Oh, I don't know, do biotech. And what else did somebody say? Oh, wins today. Let's look at that. Okay. Oh, Roku's down five, uh, 8.8% on this. Uh, Etsy on that lower forecast, only 2.5%. That's actually not bad, given how much it's been running. It's not bad. And Matterport's still hanging out around 22.5. It's also not bad. Like a little 5% give back from the runs it's had, not bad. Uh, oh, hold on a second. What's this? This is in the legislative text of their updated social spending package, and it would increase the cap on salt from $10,000 currently to $72,500. Now, that new higher cap would last through the end of the decade, 2031, and it would be retroactive to this year. Unclear wow. how Democrats plan to pay for this. This has been an extreme point of contention with progressives who are worried that raising the cap could provide a net tax cut for the rich. Senate Democrats appear to be working on their own plan as well. But for now, in the text of the House's new updated social spending package, there would be an increase in that cap on the state and local tax deductions. Guys. Do, do, likely to, to work, Elon? Well, it would work in terms of addressing their concerns that uh, so many people are falling, uh, getting caught by this cap and having to pay higher taxes. Uh, we know that they've been working on this. Both Pelosi and Schumer have signaled this as a priority. But the form of this uh, proposal has been uh, hotly debated over the past couple of days. So there's still a chance that it could change. But the current proposal is to raise that cap to $72,500 in order to prevent the wealthiest of the wealthy from taking advantage of it. Elam, thanks so much. Uh, bookings, holdings, earnings are out now, and Stephen Modi's got those for us. I'm going to go ahead and pull off that for a moment. Uh, so here's this EVAX thing. There's no clear news on this. To me, it looks like some person put in a massive order in the after hours and put in a market after hours, which I, or, or just a very high limit in after hours, since generally you can't do market in after hours. And uh, just threw in, like, potentially... You know, three hundred to a million dollars, three hundred k to a million dollars, with without a up upward threshold here, and they they paid this insane amount for a lot of stock. But I don't, I see no news uh, other than this thing keeps getting paused for volatility. So very odd. I have no idea. There seems to be no news on that Evax thing. So let's be careful with some of those small ones that like rocket because one person comes in and buys. There's like. No volume on that stock. All right. Let's now look at uh, skills. And Take-Two Interactive came in with a huge beat, by the way. Whoa. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Skills. Skills actually isn't. I don't see it yet. I don't see skills yet. And we talked about Roku. 
but we haven't talked yet about what was the other one? Oh, I want I want to look at bookings. So booking booking comes in with 4.68 billion in revenue versus 4.3 expected. That's really good. That's a good beat. Almost uh almost a 10% beat there. More rooms sold, good. The uh, Q3 adjusted EPS was 37.7 versus the consensus of 32.9. Good. Travel is back. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, what else do we have? Yeah, take two. Let's look at that one. That's That one's going nuts uh, on revenue. Take two interactive. Okay, take two... Take two, beat guidance, adjusted EPS comes in higher at 1.63 versus 1.4 expected. And revenue comes in at 984.9 versus 865 expected. That's really, really good. TTWO. Yeah, take two is now up. It's only up 1% after that insanely good beat. That's incredible. So take two kills it. Roku's getting murked a little bit. Matterport's actually back up a little bit. Uh, it's at 2.46 to the downside. It's not that bad. SunPower 2.8. That's not that bad at all for after earnings. Not bad. The Cheesecake report yet? Cheesecake. Cheesecake misses. Adjusted EPS comes in at 65 cents versus 70 expected. Revenue of 754 so cheesecake misses a little bit there. Win. I don't see that win is out yet, or that they are. Are they coming today? A MGM comes out today. Hmm. We can look at MGM. We'll do that. All right. Let's see here. Okay, looking at the upside, what's taking off? We know Fastly was doing well. So it's at 11% right now, so it was doing a little better. Sheeb is dropping. It's at 62.6 on Sheeb. Qualcomm at 6%. Skills, 2.7. MGM is up about 2.6. The MGM news. MGM comes in with net revenue at a beat, 2.71 billion versus 2.4 expected. Quarterly maintains quarterly dividend at 25 cents. Okay, so MGM beat. Take two interactives, two big, biggest franchises continue to deliver. Product uh, projects projects lackluster holiday quarter after GTA remaster. Hmm. So maybe that's why they're not so excited because uh, the or the stock market isn't so excited because even though they beat like crazy, the guide is just not phenomenal. Oh, yeah, the guide's way low. Q3 adjusted revenue expected to be 800 to 850 million versus the 917 expected. So they really pulled forward a lot of rev. So that's why even though they beat like crazy on rev, that's why maybe you're not seeing the stock like fly. It's only up 1.54%, which is fine. 
Like I'd rather be up 1% on earnings than anything else. Like to me, that's the best testament to a stock. Like the last thing I want is like a big plummet on earnings usually. Uh, and so SunPower 3%, not a big deal. Matterport has disappeared here. Yeah, there it is. It's only down 1% right now. That's not bad, uh, especially since they missed. You know, they missed by a couple million bucks. And uh, Etsy's low forecast, only bringing him down 1%. Just shows you people don't want to sell these things right now. Okay, what about skills? Okay, skills comes in. Meeting estimates. one point, uh, Sorry, 102.1 million versus 102.6 expected. So it's actually a slight miss on revenue. But uh, but it's pretty close. So they're, they're labeling it as a meet. Uh, skills. Wow. Market's happy with that one. It's probably because you have a lot of people betting against skills. A lot of shorts that are probably like, oh, crap, they actually beat or, or met. <laughs> mm. uh, Matterport bouncing back down a little bit. Remember, after hours is always a crapshoot. So do keep that in mind. EPS on skills misses, comes in at negative 16 cents. We're expecting negative 14, so a little worse than expected, which also makes sense because their revenue came in slightly lower than expected. So this no news after hours play over here that, that people are talking about in the chat, EVAX, just be careful. I really think some whale bought this thing and, and uh, manipulated the market or something And because uh, I don't see any news on it. Who knows? Maybe an insider, though. Insider trading. <laughs> anyway, uh, cheesecake uh, down 3.87%, upwork down 2%. Solar Solar Edge only down 0.71. M phase is only down a third of 1%. Affirms down about 0.6, probably on that weaker Etsy news. Tesla down about a half percent in the afters, but down a half percent is still 1208 for Tesla, which is insane. <laughs> Jeez, that stock. That's just crazy. Ooh. Aye, aye, aye. All right. So, yeah. Well, gosh, I think that about does it for now. We'll be jumping over to the course member live stream here shortly. Thank you all so much for being here, hanging out with me for earnings. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks so much, everyone.